culture's so great, Tina. You know, you're in, you're in a nightclub and a couple of thousand people there and everybody on the dance floor just seems like one organism, yeah. you know, breathing like a heart, dancing to the music and, and being able to make them whoop by changing the lights or changing the music, you know, is like a, it's a very exhilarating feeling. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I'm Tina Brown, and you're listening to TBD. Those who remember the good old bad old days of New York's Times Square can thank or blame my guest today for its transformation and gentrification over the past 40 years. In 1977, Ian Schrager, along with Steve Rebell, a fraternity brother from Syracuse University, opened in Midtown Manhattan what would become the most iconic disco the world has ever seen, Studio 54. The club forever changed nightlife, celebrity, and our addiction to glitter. But the wild dream scene crashed after only 33 months when Schrager and Rubel were convicted of tax evasion and served 13 months in prison. Once out, the Brooklyn-born Schrager returned to New York and did something else culturally seismic. He created a whole new category in hospitality, the Hip Boutique Hotel. It worked big time. Morgan's, the Royalton, the Mondrian, the Paramount, the Delano, Collaborating with some of the leading star architects of our time, Schrager, after the death of Rubel, exported his ultra-modern brand of hospitality to other cities, with an emphasis on art, design, and of course, nightlife. And he's since gone on to create other new hotel brands, Public, an affordable luxury hotel group, and a stylish co-venture chain with Marriott called Edition. Schrager now has Edition hotels in cities from London to Shanghai. In April, Schrager debuted the latest edition of the edition in, where else, Times Square. It all follows what Schrager considers his field of dreams philosophy. If he builds it, they will come. And yes, they do. Ian Schrager, welcome behind the velvet rope of TBD. Thank you so much, Tina. The Steve Jobs of the hospitality business. That's what the New York Times called you, Ian. And you've just opened a new hotel, another one, uh, the Times Square edition. Why Times Square this time? You know, I'm in an opportunistic business. I go where the opportunities are. There was an opportunity there. Uh, uh, I've done a number of projects in Times Square. Uh, it never made me anxious. You know, I believe in build something special. People come. It doesn't really matter where it is. So um, You said, I think, somewhere that a hotel needs to reflect the city that it's in. When you're not in New York, which you know extraordinarily well, you know, all of these foreign hotels you've done, how do you locate the pulse of the place? How do you decide this is the place I want to put my hotel? Well, it only takes a day or two to feel the uh, DNA of a city. 
uh, just by driving around on a bike uh, or walking around for a day or two, you kind of get the feeling of what that city is. Uh, and you also have to uh, make sure you understand the various nuances of a city. Like in London, when I did my first hotel in London, at that time, uh, people didn't play music in the restaurants. Uh, in uh, Tokyo, girls don't go out unescorted uh, like the way they do here and go to nightclubs. So you have to find out the cultural differences there are uh, to make sure you don't offend anybody. Uh, but the most important thing is you still have to do you know, what you do. You still have to be true to your own aesthetic. What do you think are the defining uh, characteristics of a Schrager Hotel? You know, a very sophisticated uh, in its visuals. Um, very simple, very refined, uh, very uh, stripped down, not to have a, a minimal look, but just stripped down to its bare essentials, nothing superfluous. Uh, and uh, exciting uh, entertainment concepts, uh, uh, exciting social opportunities. And, and by putting all of that together, uh, an alchemy happens. And that's the magic. Yeah, it is. It is definitely that magic. And you do know when you walk into a place that it's one of yours or not. Where, where do you think you got that strong aesthetic taste from, Ian? Because, I mean, you went to law school and not design school. I mean, where did that come from? Well, my parents had good taste. Mm -hmm. They always made an effort with the homes I lived in. It wasn't ostentatious, or, but it was just a, an attempt to do something different than the other people in the neighborhood who had uh, living rooms with the plastic covering <laughs> the couches and things like that. And, you know, my parents never wanted that. You know, I remember when they were looking for a, a, a modest home, they didn't want to have to walk through the living room to get to the kitchen uh, and things like that. So, and, and my father and, and mother were elegant. Uh, they dressed elegant. And so that obviously had an impact on me. Yeah. I didn't know that uh, I had... Uh, a taste level. I think it came out of a, a necessity in my partnership with Steve. You know, he gravitated to one area and I gravitated to the other area, and I enjoyed it. I still love it. I mean, if Studio 54 had ended differently, do you think that you'd have stayed in the nightclub business? I mean, no. you really went into hotels because you couldn't get a liquor license, right? No, uh, I went into uh, nightclubs. Uh, because, first of all, it was a kind of social phenomenon at that time. That is just about when the, you, you, you were really experiencing the, the fruition of everything with the pill and sexual freedom. It was when the city was bombarded with the baby boomers, so there was a certain age of people in New York. And you didn't have to have a lot of capital or a lot of talent to go into the nightclub business. It was a little bit like the way it was uh, in the garage phase of technology, or the garage phase of rock and roll. Yeah, you weren't sort of beleaguered by zoning issues and, and, and litigation. And you didn't have to know anything. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have the feel for throwing a party. And, uh, you know, it was funny. Steve wanted to go into it, I think, because uh, he thought it was a good business. But I think, you know, he liked the kind of social aspects of it, I suppose. I wanted to go into it because I thought it was a good business. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, did, you know, it's no longer in the garage phase anymore. Uh, and, could you uh, do a great nightclub now? Oh, definitely. You could? Definitely. And and what would it be like? Uh, well, you know, the human condition doesn't change. The fashions change. Everything changes around those peripheral things. But the actual human instinct doesn't change. It hasn't changed for 5,000 years. Uh, and you I don't, don't like to go out. And like to socialize. And like to socialize, yeah. But it's you know, so much more expensive. And the digital age means people are way more kind of 
disengaged. They're less social, in fact, than they used to be. Is that a factor? That changes how they get their social activities. It doesn't change the fact that they need social activities. You know, I happen to think that uh, the communal working spaces is a response to wanting social activities uh, rather than being buried in a marble edifice and then going home on your computer. With Facebook or Instagram, you know, you're looking for that social interaction during the day. I mean, I think that's a direct outcrop of that. You know, so you have to tap into those things that will allow people to socialize and have a sense of freedom. Uh, do you hanker to do one? I mean, would you like to do another big club? No, would not. You know, I am a totally different place in my life. Everything's very personal for me. I, I would do a club if it's part of a hotel because it's good business. <laughs> uh, I don't get the enjoyment out of that the way I, I did. It was just so great, Tina. You know, you're in, you're in a nightclub and a couple of thousand people there and everybody on the dance floor... It just seems like one organism, yeah. you know, breathing like a heart, dancing to the music and, and being able to make them whoop by changing the lights or changing the music, you know, is like a, it's a very exhilarating feeling. But, uh, you know, there are places now, isolated places now, that have that kind of thing that studio had in, in, in Ibiza. By the way, they have those kind of clubs uh, in East Berlin. They have those kind of clubs. Uh, Burning Man is a is a little bit of that. So it's it's just a finding the right vehicle. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know to do it. You know, you never really talked about the fifty four days until this recent documentary by Matt Turnour. Um, I mean, having worked with you, I know what a control freak you are in the best way. So I was kind of amazed that you were willing to give up that control to have this documentary done. I mean, uh, how collaborative was that? You know, uh, I uh, asked Matt to do it. And uh, I decided that I wanted to do a film for a couple of reasons. First of all, I had just recently got a pardon from uh, President Obama, which had brought closure to me. Um, Was it an important thing for you to get that pardon? Very. Not for business reasons, just uh, to bring closure. And the prosecutor himself recommended you for it because he said what an upstanding citizen you'd been ever since. That must have been kind of gratifying. Yes. I was sad Steve didn't get it, but it was a very important thing for me. I remember writing in my letter, you know, asking for it, that I, you know, I want a pardon for all the right reasons. I don't need it for any business. I want it because it shows my kids that I'll be forgiven for a mistake and, mm-hmm. you know, pick myself up and, and, and go on. So th- that was an important thing to me. But th- as always happens, there were a lot of revisionists because I wasn't talking about studio. There were a lot of people taking liberties and talking about it. Uh, so you were, wanted to own your story? Yes. Yeah. It was mine and Steve's. Yes. And so I wanted to go and I wanted to set the record straight because a lot of people were increasing their self-importance and changing really what happened. And so. I mean, looking back at all that sort of unbridled hedonism, are, are there a couple of nights or parties from that era that really stand out for you as the great iconic evenings at Studio 54? You know, I have to say it was kind of all a blur. It happened so fast, it was holding on to a lightning bolt. There are a couple of moments I remember. I, I, I would always remember when there would be a celebrity that would come that, you know, would be particularly gratifying to me, like Vladimir Horowitz or... Like Margaret Trudeau. Remember that? She wasn't one of them. I do remember that. <laughs> but I remember the first time, uh, the night we opened, Cher was there, and she was at the pinnacle at that point, and... You know, I had gone home and Steve stayed later, as 
was always the case. Uh, and I got a phone call from Steve, 5 o'clock in the morning. We were on the front page of the New York Post. The day we opened, the front page of the New York Post. Wow. I know, like, and it went on. I mean, you kept getting front pages. It was absolutely extraordinary. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Uh, I met you for the first time uh, in 1988 when Bob Colicello said that I should talk to you about throwing a memorable party for the fifth anniversary of Vanity Fair. And I went to see you and Steve. And I'll be honest, I actually originally thought that it was Steve who was the force behind Studio. But then when I met you, it was quite clear to me within about sort of 20 minutes that that you were the creative genius. Well, we were both. Uh, well, but Steve, I mean, Steve was obviously the, 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 you know, the, the, the maestro of the people, as it were. But you were the aesthetic and the, the whole feel of that club. And you had so many incredible imaginative ideas. I mean, you immediately suggested opening up a venue that I'd never heard of at the time, Billy Rose's Diamond Horseshoe Club, right, in the basement of the Paramount. What were your own memories of that epic night? Because when we did that party, I think it was one of the greatest parties that I've ever been to. My, me too. Great party. I remember everything about it uh, like it was yesterday. I, the gold I, I mean, it was an incredible mix from Larry Tish. Uh, it was... Uh, it was, it was Henry a, Kissinger and Jerry Zipkin, all these crazy people were all... And together. young people. And young people, yeah. Uh, but the polarization, Henry Kissinger, Larry Tish, yeah. uh, down yeah. to uh, yeah. uh, maybe a transvestite person. Yeah, and, and all the crazy fashion people. And I mean, it was an amazing... There was a conga line at one point yes. where they were all joined together. When I was working with you on that, I really got a sense of you were kind of in the magic business. I mean, you knew how to kind of put together the blocks that would make the magic, you know, and you brought in Robert Isabel, who was the great sort of party designer, who who I did not like at all at first. But then as soon as I saw him up a ladder painting a palm tree, you know, gold, I realized that there was something, was something very special about him because he was so kind of granular about his attention to the aesthetic and also he could do it very cheaply, actually. So what do you think makes a great party? I mean, why are you so good at that? Well, thank you. Uh, you know, I think having diversity of people 
uh, a very, very intelligent uh, guest list, you know, when you put people of diversity together. It creates an electricity because they're not used to seeing each other. They're not used to chatting with each other. It's very expansive. Uh, it's like a, an interesting cocktail uh, uh, that bubbles up, smoke comes out of. And so that that's the secret of a great party. In the end of the day, that is the basis. That's the most important part. That's the DNA of the party. Uh, and all the other things... Goose it up a bit, you know. Mm-hmm. They they all add to it, like uh, the way special effects add to a, a a great movie. Yeah, well, we we did also did together that incredible Hollywood fundraiser for for Phoenix House, and in my diary I wrote about how you walked around the venue, which was a transformed studio lot, and when it was all set up to your specification, you sort of tweaked all the lighting, and you said, "Now the magic's in the room," and you kind of left after that. And I was like, I was thinking, where's Ian? I mean, this night was such a special night, but you like got on a plane and went home. Yeah. What, what is this? I mean, you, you're the man who isn't there. You know, I, I, I just, um, the part that I enjoy is creating it and seeing initially the way people react to it. And that's the part that I enjoy. It's so funny. It's so weird. <laughs> I know, you but know, you split. In the, in the business I'm in, it's not unlike... Uh, an entertainer, uh, a Michael Jackson or, or, or somebody else that's so incredibly shy in real life. But what's, when they get on stage, something happens. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. That just, you know, I just, that's not the part that I enjoy. Even today, I, uh, I feel the same way today. I remember when we opened up the uh, Times Square edition, which is a smash, and uh, all those uh, girls came, Kendall Jenner and so on and so forth. And the part that I didn't want to do was go take a picture with them. (laughs) I remember, you know, the absolute shock of Steve Rebell's death in 1989 and realizing from the speeches at the funeral how deep down he'd stayed such a regular guy from Brooklyn. It was such a a poignant funeral, I I found, because, you know, it was, although there were so many celebrities in, in, in that room, it wasn't a sort of celebrity funeral with fancy people making speeches. It was a very uh, down-to-earth kind of a funeral. And you once pointed out that the irony was that Studio 54's fame and velvet rope was keeping up the bridge and tunnel crowd, but actually that you and Steve were the ultimate bridge and tunnel people. Do you think that was what your bond was about? Well, Steve had the secret sauce in, in getting along with people. You know, and so it was fun to be around Steve. Because uh, you, know, you were sort of yin and yang. Yes. Yeah. You know, he, uh, first of all, was smart as a whip. Really bright, smart, laser-focused guy. And, um, you know, he really enjoyed talking to people. When you really enjoy talking to people, you're good at it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know... And he was actually a, um, a driven wrangler, wasn't he? I mean, he, he, he would get on the phone and he would just wrangle, which I always used to respect. <laughs> and, uh, he was really, really great at it. Uh, and, uh, you know, our motives with that rope... Uh, was really sincere and innocent. You know, we were trying to throw a, a great party that had a balance to it, that had that diversity, that is not politically correct in the public 
venue. It is in the private house, but in the public, it's a, a fence. Making a decision about who comes in right. and who does not. Yeah. You know, it's a kind of spontaneous decision. Is it true that you would separate couples and say yes. you can come in, but you can't? Uh, because there was an integrity about it. It had nothing to do with wealth <laughs> or anything like that. It was, there was an integrity about it. And, 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 and because it was spontaneous, uh, errors were made. And because Steve may have stepped over the line a little bit. It, it was so funny. Steve was able to get away with saying no, uh, where other people at the door, when they said no, it came off as mean. Yeah. But it didn't come off as mean. But do you also think that it was part of the blowback, though, when things turned, that people were, there was some resentment about More that. than a blowback. I happen to think that that resentment found an institutional outlet, you know, like uh, in, in, the, in the case with Mike Milken, uh, by the way, uh, you know, uh, you know, he got so many traditional established finance people mad because he controlled the market, uh, and he would seem to be unstoppable, etc., etc., etc. And I kind of think that resentment and jealousy found an institutional outlet. Yeah. Uh, that's not to say he didn't commit a crime, but I, I think that's the way things. You know, happened. I mean, uh, a prosecutor sensing the resentment, and that's the way it happens. I think people were really, really mad at us, thinking what we were doing was undemocratic. But that wasn't it. They were mad they weren't getting in, and their usual social stature didn't mean anything uh, at the studio. And they were really, really aggravated about it. Yeah, there's nothing like uh, pissing somebody off socially to make an enemy for life. I mean, I've found that. You know, you can have a friend, and you give them the seat they didn't like, and all of a sudden, they're mad with you for the next five years. It's 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 a very... You know people why, are very Tina? insecure socially. They're you, very you, know, insecure. you know why? Uh, you know, if you have an argument with somebody over something, you can always settle it. But if you slight somebody, mm-hmm. yeah. they never forget it. Yeah, they burn. They burn. Well, when you and Steve actually served time together, that must have been incredibly difficult. I mean, what did you discover about yourself in prison and about the friends that you had on the outside? I mean, as you sat there for 13 months, it must have just been agony. Uh, you know, what was that process for you? Oh, terrible. Uh, you know, it was uh, absolute, the worst thing I had ever gone through. I don't wish that on anybody. You know, uh, what people don't realize is that what separates us from the monkeys is that we have a human discretion. Uh, Well, you have no discretion when you're in jail. You know, that's completely taken away. You're told when you can go to the bathroom, you're told when you can shower, you're told when you can eat, and you're told when you go to sleep. Uh, And uh, it was just terrible. And I didn't do well with it. And people were concerned, you know, because I, I was losing weight, I was kind of quiet. I was reading a lot. And you talked actually in the film about you felt a great deal of shame, didn't you, about being there? Yeah. And how did Steve do? Steve was the mayor. You know, Steve was there. I Sometimes I had to protect him from getting uh, hurt by somebody. Uh, you know, he was uh, the same happy-go-lucky guy and... And uh, if he had his cans of Pepsi stored under his bed, uh, he was happy. Uh, And, of course, I mean, formerly incarcerated people can't, it's terrible when they come out, right? And you went, I mean, you can't get a loan, a liquor license, so many things. Credit card. Yeah, a credit card. Was that a stunning thing to realize when you came out that actually you were free, but you had so many obstacles in your way? You're stripped. It's uh, like uh, standing in the courtyard and getting your gold epaulets and your brass buttons pulled off and your hat and, uh, you know, and we didn't feel whole. 
Couldn't open up a bank account. Yeah. Couldn't open up a bank account to get a check, checking account. Had to go down to Virginia to get a credit card. Had to put up a certain sum of money so the bank could hold it there. And we were even worse off because we couldn't go back to what we did before. We couldn't get a liquor license. You know, so, uh, you know, we had to choose a different thing to, to make a living at. And when did it come into your mind that you were then going to go into hotels? Did you dream that up in prison or when yeah, you came out? I wanted to go into hotels. Uh, you know, I thought that they were the next logical step from the nightclub business. They, 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 it, both were concerned about hospitality. Both were concerned about looking after people. Uh, and I thought that whether it's restaurants, nightclubs, uh, now it's even offices, uh, hospitality is totally pervasive in everything. So I wanted to go uh, into hotels. I had read this uh, David Appelstrom book, uh, The Best and the Brightest. Mm-hmm. It had a really tremendous impact on me because, you know, when he wrote about the uh, growth of those media empires, in every one of those cases, there was an interlude in their life. Most of the time, was the war. it was the war. And it was during that interlude that they decided to go off on a different yeah. uh, tact. And uh, so, you know, you know I... write I write in my diary, uh, you know, when I met you at that time, you know, you said you decided to do something called a boutique hotel, you know, and like, would it work? You know, I didn't know that it would work. And I just can't believe when I see what you've created, I mean, how extraordinary it's been. Did you have any thought that it would become so massive? You know, I think that that uh, boutique hotel has had such a pervasive impact on everything uh, and that uh, we didn't even know it. Uh, you know, uh, Adam Newman. Yeah, who does, with WeWork, yeah. He said he was inspired by uh, the boutique hotel. Uh, you're seeing it in, in the WeWork. Yeah. You know, you're seeing it in We Live. You know, there are thousands and thousands of versions of what we did. It never really interested me to do that. If Steve were alive or had another partner like Steve, made out a couple of thousand hotels. It just, it, it didn't interest me. But the idea, now that I see it, I think hospitality is part of just about everything. Hotels is only one aspect of it. And, and, and that kind of experience that was created in the social places of hotels is now what everyone's relying on to distinguish how they live, how they work, everything. Yeah, no, and how, and how they blend. Um, you know, what was it like for you to lose Steve? I mean, how did you get through those two or three years? Were there people who thought that, you know, you would not be as successful without Steve? Everybody thought I wouldn't. Nobody knew what I did. Uh, you know, it was Alan Grubman, uh, really savvy, smart, streetwise uh, entertainment lawyer who said to me once that, uh, you know, everybody thought it was Steve. Uh, and then uh, Steve dies, and you go on without missing a heartbeat, thinking it was, it was you all the time. It wasn't me all the time. We were both of us together. Yeah. Uh, but we, one plus one made three. Sure. I was able to uh, try and put elements together that covered the kind of thing Steve did. Yeah. Well, I tend to think you, you actually are probably more successful without Steve, because Steve, I think... Steve's flamboyance and, and willingness to kind of step over the edge might have not also been the biggest help in, in the big-time corporate world. Well, that's what I meant when I said if we didn't make a mistake. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm sure Steve grew also from the uh, GL thing. Uh, people don't realize how smart he was. Do you miss having a partner? Would you like to have had a partner? Yes. Definitely yeah. It's very like hard that. to find them, isn't it? 
very hard. I think it has to happen very early because somehow when you evolve, finding that trust level with a new person is very difficult. And yet some of the best businesses of all the people we know have been about partnerships like a Calvin Klein and Barry Schwartz. So, you know, a lot of the, the big fashion people who've survived have all had partners. Like I tell the people in, in, in my office, I have a certain capacity. I can't worry about the height of the desk off the floor and, and, and the width of the floor planks and still have capacity left over to worry about some of the other things about growing this. Yes. Plant. Yeah. I can't do it. So how, do you, how have you restructured your business without Steve? You know, I, uh, I still do the custom-made one-off, and what, I, what I've done is I've uh, done a deal with uh, Marriott. Uh, we're working on 40 hotels now. Been I very... was really surprised when I heard that first. I thought, how do you combine your aesthetic with the, this chain, this mass chain, Marriott? And actually, I didn't have a lot of high hopes for it, although I do like Arnie Sorensen enormously, the CEO. Oh. I mean, why does it work so well? You know, I, I, uh, Arnie Sorensen, who I've been partners with for 11 years, has almost had as much impact on me as my father did. Mm. Uh, he's just a really wonderful, wonderful, great guy. I can't say enough about him. Uh, and I'm older than he is, but he's just such a centered, decent man. And I learned a lot from all the Marriott people, by the way. Uh, they're all decent. They're all straight. They're all honest. But it's a very different aesthetic, usually, in a Marriott hotel. Very different aesthetic. You see, they're, uh, they uh, use their business motto. You know, Bill Marriott said to me, you know, I don't want to be a pioneer. I don't want to get shot with Indian arrows. You clear the land. I'll come in and build a hotel. You know, uh, <laughs> you know uh, well, you know what? I want to clear the land. I don't want to come in and build a hotel. But, you know, look, it was, it was difficult in the beginning. We have more similarities than dissimilarities, by the way. Uh, you know, we're both driven. All of us are driven. And there was uh, some electricity there in the beginning for the first couple of years until the respect came, until they realized I can do what they can't do, and until I realized that uh, they can do what I can't do. How has Airbnb affected your business? It hasn't affected it yet, but it will. I used to tell the hotel industry... They're coming after our children, Airbnb. <laughs> you know, uh, of course, uh, they were in denial about that the same way they were in denial about the, the online travel agents. Right. You know, uh, Airbnb is a completely disruptive and brilliant uh, invention. After now, the last several years, everyone is finally, you know, realizing it. I knew it. You know, I, I think the one thing we in the hotel business have to do, and I think we'll clearly set up for it, is they don't have public spaces. You know, they don't have that social and entertainment uh, element. They can't do that. They can't, no. And, and we, in the hotel world, have to provide accommodations that give people the same kind of uh, quarters that they would get in a, in a home, yeah. which is just a family travels, and, you know, they may want three or four bedrooms and the central meeting area and, and, and a kitchen. So we have to do that. You can't stop progress uh, by by utilizing the law to right. stop it. No, you've got to evolve You'll delay it. it. No, look, it's, it's, it's what happened. You've got to come up with a good idea to beat a better yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let's talk about another hotelier that you must know extremely well, not as he is in politics, but as he is in the business of hotels and real estate, the world that you know so well. What is your opinion of Trump? You know, as the Trump hotels, as Mar-a-Lago, as the golf, uh, you know, resort. I mean, what do you think about his? You know, I I know Donald a long time. I met him over Roy Cohn's office. I always held him in high regard. Why? Because uh, he came from a wealthy family. And he still seemed to be very, very ambitious and still seemed to want to make his own way. You know, he had a different way about doing things. Wasn't my style. I wouldn't, I couldn't go there and I did respect him. Do you think that they are well done, his hotels? The first hotels he did were well conceived. Well done, they don't appeal to my aesthetic. I do think, however, you know, he had a rough and tumble, you know, reputation New York City real estate and the New York City real estate robber barons that I deal with every day, it's not for the faint of heart. I often ask myself, do I prefer dealing with the Marriott guys who are straight and honest and don't do everything by consensus, or do I like the real estate robber guys that uh, are not straight? And you know what? I don't know. <laughs> but what I learned in dealing you know, with Marriott and the consensus building. They can't afford to make a mistake to a big public company. You know, uh, you're an entrepreneur. You don't care about making a mistake. You, go, you, you know, you go on. I couldn't run a big public company. I don't have the kind of personality. I don't have the kind of temperament. I, I, I couldn't do it. Uh, and I don't think an entrepreneur can run a big company can, I mean, or run a country. Uh, yeah, I mean, what is your view of Trump? In the presidency, do you see a change in Trump from the man you knew as an entrepreneur and a hotelier and a uh, you know a builder and a, a, a robber baron, if you like, to the man he is now? Does he seem like the same guy to you? Do you see all those traits in his character that he shows as president? Uh, you know, I've tried not to go public uh, with this because I do like Donald and I know him a really, really long time. You know, I just think uh, he shouldn't be president. That's not his skill set. You know, I think he's smart. Uh, Lion Hillary. That's not the kind of language that should be coming out of the presidential office. I think it lowers the standards. It lowers the stature. It just, you know, I don't care that I've received personal benefits from some of the things he's done. I don't care. Like, I care about the country and I care about his stature and I, you know, I just... uh, are you have you been interested to read about you know his his uh, state of his finances? I mean the the bankruptcies and the kind of iffiness and all the rest of it of his financial world. I mean, do you think that if we investigated half the people in real estate, we would find the same thing? Uh, well, not the real estate families. The real estate families of which he's one of them came from them. You know, people like the Lafracs and the Rudens and the other. Uh, uh, families that grew up. Those guys are worth billions of dollars. Billions. Six, eight, ten billion dollars. Uh, because they quietly constructed their knitting and built up the business. Uh, and they are worth, uh, you, know, f- you know, fabulous amounts uh, of money. Uh, Donald went for the headlines and, and kind of veered off, you know, from that. 
you know, I remember a lot of wealthy guys, friends uh, of mine that were always trying to say, well, what, well, what does he own? You know, let's go over this. Well, you, you know, what does he own? And they couldn't, you know, come up with a lot of uh, things. I, I assume he's very wealthy. I, I don't know how much I, you know, and, and I don't care. And I, I, I assume that, uh, you know, uh, with that apprentice show and the royalties and everything like that, I'm sure that uh, he gets, uh, you know, has benefited from that a lot. You know, uh, Ian, I, I've known you such a long time, and I don't think I've ever seen you as happy personally as you are now. So uh, true, you, know, you, know, you knew that. And, you, of course, you were married once and had two daughters, right? And now you're, again, married to a ballerina, right? What is it with ballerinas and you? <laughs> I don't know. My wife doesn't like me to say I guess I like ballerinas. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, you know. First of all, I, I, you know, there's an elegance about the whole discipline, and uh, there's a steely nerve and ambition to become a ballerina. Yeah, no, it's hard. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know, uh, but I am happy now. You know, I have a really good marriage. You know, I love my family, my girls. Uh, I love her girls. Uh, I uh, love my son. Uh, you know, I love my work. Yeah. And what do you do to socialize yourself? I mean, because given that you are actually, and as you always say, an introvert, I mean, what do you do when you're off duty and you're not, you know, pacing those hotels and... and... I like hanging out with my family. So what's a a, a typical evening in the Schrager house when you come home? uh, You know, I'll come home and, uh, you know, now it's a little bit different because my son has been having some sleeping issues. So uh, we all go to sleep at 8.30. (laughs) He's how old? Uh, Eight. You know, uh, so we all go to sleep to comfort him. We're all sleeping in the same room now, uh, you know, until he gets through this. But, uh, you know, it's it's so funny, Tina, you know, like I I look forward to getting home, to eating dinner with my wife and son. Uh, Sometimes my girls come over, sometimes her girls come over, you know, uh, and uh, then we play around with Louie and, you know, he goes to sleep uh, at 7.30, 8 o'clock and uh, I don't work anymore at that point. I, you know, I might just watch TV, and I'm perfectly content and happy. Yeah, sure. I don't need anything else. Yeah, right, right. It's, it's wonderful. Will any of your kids want to follow you, you think, into this business of hotels and, and design and all the, all the things you're doing? Are your daughters interested in it? Uh, I think so. But, you know, I have a different feeling. You know, when I grew up, my, my mother and father wanted a doctor and a lawyer. Uh, you know, I don't have any ambitions for my kids in terms of financial success. I just want them to be happy. I want them to give back in some way. They have to do something, but it doesn't have to be profit-driven. And if they come into what I'm doing, great. I, I remember when I was doing something with a lawyer uh, and, uh, you know, uh, some kind of financial deal with all the hotels. And I said, well, I want to save this in case one of the kids want to go into it. You know, my son, my lawyer says, that's 25 years from now. <laughs> you know, so I, I I don't care, and they know it. You know, one daughter wants to be a, a, a writer. One daughter is getting a doctorate in uh, Columbia to be a nutritionist. One daughter is Cornell Hotel School. She may want to come into it, but I don't know. Uh, my son uh, has that eye. Uh, you know, he walks in, he sees things right away uh, other people don't see. It's funny that's a different generational thing for me. I don't care as long as they're, they're happy. That, that's all that matters. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining me on TBD. Thank I you, love Tina. talking to you. I love your hotels. Uh, all those years I spent having lunch at the Royalton Hotel when I was at the New Yorker and it was the Condé Nast Cafeteria. I feel like I've grown up in your hotels in New York. Oh, so that's so kind. It's extraordinary what you've created. Thank you so much, Tina. 
You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. And please don't keep TBD all to yourself. Tweet about it, Instagram it, or, you know, try having an actual conversation with a real person. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's a great way to spread the word. Want to get more engaged with the energy around women's empowerment? Sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter of Women in the World for all the stories that you need to know coming to you from global women on the front edge of change. That's womenintheworld.com. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Compton, Justine Giannino, and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. Come back next time for more smart people on TBD. TBD.